past ball show. Brought to you by JohnPielli.com. What the f*** you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f- Put that in. I don't... So the tribe drops its third straight on this trip. Six to one to the Rangers. For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got. One goddamn hit. Don't worry, nobody's listening anyway. I'm talking about the past. I'm talking about the history. I'm talking about what's great about this game of baseball. There's so much stuff that we talk about. I would say I wouldn't know, but I would say the reason why they won the past is baseball going to Let me start by telling you this. I have never used steroids, period. Jerry, just remember, it's not a lie if you believe it. Yes, he sucks. Well, he's out. Yes, Brad is out. Look at, look at this. Brad is out. Uh, David Mann. Sell the team. Oh, yeah. Thanks for coming back. Hour two of the radio program. John Pielli, Passball Show. Of course, uh, check out johnpielli.com. Tweet at me at john underscore Pielli. We keep the program interactive. First thing we're going to do is play an interview I recorded this past week with a former second baseman that played for the New York Yankees, Kansas City Athletics, and Detroit Tigers from the year 1956 to 1967. He was a 1964 All-Star. In 1962, he finished 25th in the voting for the American League Most Valuable Player by playing in 156 games, had 641 at-bats, 89 runs scored, 193 hits, 34 doubles, 10 triples, 10 home runs, 83 runs batted in, 44 walks, a 301 batting average, a 341 on base percentage, a 432 slugging percentage, 277 total bases, six sacrifice hits, and nine sacrifice flies. In his career, which spanned 12 seasons, he played in 1,371 games, had 4,912 at-bats, 620 runs scored, 1,314 hits, 190 doubles, 52 triples, 47 home runs, 454 RBIs, 20 stolen bases, 428 walks, a 268 average, a 325 on base percentage, a 356 slugging percentage, 1,749 total bases, 57 sacrifice hits, 36 sacrifice flies, and 21 intentional walks. And of course, a guy that also won the World Series championship with the New York Yankees in 1958 uh, was appeared on the 1956 team that beat the Dodgers, but did not play in the World Series, but then had a chance to play in 57 and 58 when they played against the Milwaukee Braves. And his name was Jerry Lumpy. Uh, so hopefully you guys enjoy this spot with uh, former Yankees, Athletics, and Tigers second baseman. Good afternoon, this is John Pielli, and I'm happy to be joined by former Major League second baseman Jerry Lumpy. Jerry, thank you for having a couple minutes for that. All right, Jerry, um, really the first question that I'd like to ask is, um, your earliest memory involving baseball, was it was it playing baseball itself, or maybe it was, uh, you know, uh, following maybe uh, a game that you heard on a radio or something like that? What would you say is your first and earliest baseball memory? Well, 
understand him saying for sure that uh, my first memory uh, was uh, listening on the radio to the St. Louis Cardinals. Uh, I'm from Missouri and uh, uh, way back then um, the Cardinals uh, were of course the furthest team west and so they had a large, large uh, radio audience looking in many states around here and my father was quite a baseball fan and uh, and I, I can remember uh, uh, listening to him uh, on the radio and I was just uh, got enthralled with it and uh, because of my father really and, and, uh, and of course the Cardinals were always pretty big, you know, uh, even, you know, way back then. So, uh, I think that's probably my first, my first memory of the game. Now, was there any particular player you followed? Was it Stan Musial, or is there anybody else you remember maybe before that? Or? No, I was an infielder, so uh, I followed Marty Marion, who was the shortstop for the Cardinals back then. And, uh, and of course, he was, uh, you know, everybody kind of picks a hero, I guess, and, uh, he was, uh, he was mine, of course. He was over there, you know, and all of them, but, uh, anyway, he was, uh, he was a man that I liked, you know, yeah. Yeah, so as, as you end up going forward, you know, you end up uh, starting to play baseball on your own and obviously uh, probably comes to you that you got the talent and maybe the ability to play in the major leagues. Tell, tell us a little bit about coming up, uh, you know, when, when, you, when you signed that experience and then eventually getting yourself into the major leagues. Well, you know, I went to a very small school here in Missouri and uh, we didn't even have high school baseball. But as a kid, uh, I played, we played some kind of baseball all summer long. Uh, even if it was uh, three or four kids, we played. Uh, we had all never got a game, you know, and we played. And then I was playing on a, a, uh, an American League team, which was good, but we only played. Actually, only played one day a week because we had no lights on our field. And uh, so anyway, I, I just was kind of playing around enough and, uh, and got uh, uh, back then, of course, there was no draft. And uh, all scouts had a, what they call bird dogs that were uh, in their own small towns and watched games and then would report to a scout. And so uh, anyway, the. Uh, Yeah, so this this guy probably wasn't that hard to find, right? With the Cadillac in the hat. 
Jerry Lumpy. Now, Jerry, were you were you originally a second baseman, or were you playing like a little bit of shortstop? Uh, what, where were you playing at the time where you were originally signed? Well, uh, I signed as a shortstop, and that's what I played. Through Once again, John Piala here with Jerry Lumpy. Now, when you were when you were in the minors, as you were, you know, come from working your way up to the majors, was there anybody um, that you that you look back on and realize was real influential in your development? Anybody that you you felt was a maybe a mentor or a coach or somebody that really helped you out in your development? Well, uh, although he was uh, although he was a pitcher. Uh, uh, a, a manager I had that uh, really liked me and pushed me was Andy Lope. Uh And he was at uh, AAA and then uh, and uh, and AA for a while. And, and he was uh, he, he he helped he helped me a lot. I mean, not as a as a he helped me anyway in the field or anything, but uh, he was just a big booster of mine. And, and I think, uh, I think he probably uh, uh, took the category you're talking about probably more than anybody. Now, you know, as you end up making your debut, you mentioned you started with the Yankees in 1956. That was the year that they won the World Series. But the next year, you end up getting the, getting the play in the World Series in 57, and of course, again in 58 when the Yankees beat the Milwaukee Braves. Uh, tell us a little bit about about that experience and having a chance to be part of a World Series championship. Well, you know, there's really uh, quite, you know, nothing like it, really. Really, that were full of 
just your Hall of Famers, you know. And so it was just a great atmosphere. And most of the series went seven games. Uh, they, they beat us in 57 and 7. And then uh, in 58, they had us down. Three games to one, and we came back and won the last three, including the last two in Milwaukee. And, you know, what, how better If you go back to the Yankees in that time for really the, uh, the the 40s and the 50s as well as the early 60s, is that you know they were they were in it if not winning the pennant every single year, and of course you end up getting traded in the 1959 season, and then you end up playing for you know Kansas City and eventually for Detroit. Did you notice that much of a difference in the atmosphere? Um, in regards to playing for a team other than the Yankees, a team you know that didn't have that that history and the expectation to at least win the AL pennant every year. Well, you know, uh, yeah, you could tell the difference. Of course, there was nothing, you know, uh, electric like Yankee Stadium, but you know, you can ask me that just like you. And to me, the best thing that ever happened when I went there. Because, you know, you don't know what it was like playing under Casey Stengel. You didn't know whether you were going to be playing tomorrow, today, or whether you were going to be back ninth, or you were going to be back third, or whatever. And, uh, you know, I, you know, I might not have lasted a couple of years being with the Yankees. And there I got over there, and I had a chance to play every day. I knew I was going to play, and, and uh, really uh, gave me a chance to to prove that uh, I should have been in the major leagues, you know, so I, I, that was all fine, the Yankees and everything, and that, you know, the two World Series were great, but, but to me, the, the opportunity to be able to play every day, know you're going to play every day, uh, and to be able to prove yourself was worth it, you know, I mean, that's just my feeling. I mean, that's the way it was. So, so you're saying that, you know, getting a chance to play every day, um, even you know, even though the teams that you played for later, you know, were not were not winning teams, probably superseded uh, the opportunity to be, let's say, a role player or a bench player on a championship team. Well, yeah, and you didn't know, you know, just all I can get traded. You didn't know how long you're going to be a bench player on a team like that, you know, especially, uh, you know, playing for uh, Samuel, that was really, you know, not a lot of fun. Uh, and, uh, and it, you know, just the idea that you know, somebody's going to have enough patience and say, okay, here's... Your job. Once again, John Pielli here with uh, former Major League second baseman Jerry Lumpy. Now, one question I want to ask you about the Philadelphia, uh, sorry, the Kansas City Athletics. Um, your chance to play there, you mentioned about the opportunity getting a chance to play. 
Uh, what would you consider your your best experience? If you had to go back, one was it a was it a game? Was it a particular season? What is your best memory about playing for for Kansas City? From, uh, from from Kansas City Athletics named Carl Duzer. And Carl told told me that he was he was definitely convinced that the Kansas City Athletics were were used as kind of a farm club for the New York Yankees, the way a lot of deals were orchestrated. Did you feel that there was any truth to that?
get over the trail, I will have an actual one. I can say that thought maybe a year or two. That should have gone before that, but then it did not come up to the manager's lot of time to pick up the thing. So anyway, but no, it was fun. I enjoyed it. It was a one-year deal, but that's all I Alright, Jerry, I appreciate you giving me some time and uh, yeah, best of luck to you. Great getting a chance to catch up with Jerry right there. And I'll tell you, one thing that fascinates me is the fact that it really was such common knowledge that the Kansas City athletics of the 19, late 1950s and 1960s were pretty much the farm club of the New York Yankees. How two teams could work together to benefit one, really defies the whole fair trade practice, which I've preached for years and I've talked about when two teams make a deal with each other, the best thing to do is have something that benefits both teams. And it was not the case in the Kansas City Athletics and the New York Yankees dealings in the the 50s and the 60s. And obviously Charlie Finley had a lot to do with that, but the Yankees were also being very smart. They were they were able to acquire up-and-coming star type of players. And what they were dealing at the time was usually a, a couple younger players. They usually never panned out. Um, every now and then a player like that would be traded back to the Yankees, a, a younger player that started to uh, find his own in Kansas City. But for the most part, it was uh, veteran players. Uh, you know, Jerry Lumpy in that case was traded to the Athletics. Uh, Don Larson is a guy I remember being moved. But, um, you know, that's how the Yankees got Roger Maris. That's how the Yankees made a lot of other moves and made themselves good for the late part of the 50s and the early part of the 60s. But, uh, you know, I find it fascinating how one team can actually go out of their way to kind of benefit the other. And that was certainly the case with the Athletics and the Yankees in the 50s and the 60s. Once again, John Pielli, past ball show. MTR Radio Network, brought to you, of course, by JohnPielli.com. What we're going to do is take a little bit of a break, and we'll come back, talk a little bit about a couple topics. Uh, I do want to get into talk a little bit about George Harper, who he is, and his impact in Major League Baseball history, as well as talk a little bit about the Houston Astros and Colorado Rockies trade. Um, Dexter Fowler moving over to the Astros from the Rockies, and a lot of people were bashing it from the Colorado Rockies perspective. So we're going to talk a little bit about that, plus a lot more going on. Don't forget to tweet at me at John underscore Pielli. We'll be right back after this. This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. Que bueno. But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio. I'm Ron Sulpizi from the MTR Sports Report. Not sure where to eat? Then listen to these reviews. Awesome. Amazing Greek food. Everything is fresh. Great family restaurant in the heart of Ocean City. Katina's is an Ocean City staple. When you've had your fill of pizza, cheesesteaks, and ice cream, head for Katina's. Katina's Gyro Restaurant, 501 East 9th Street, Ocean City, New Jersey, 609-399-5525. Check out their website, katinasfoods.com. That's katinasfoods.com. Order their famous Mediterranean dressing, and they'll ship it right to your door. Follow us on Facebook and Twitter, Katina's Greek Restaurant. 
in your face, all over the place. We're online 24-7-24-7. You're listening to the hottest internet station. MTR. Welcome back. This is the Passball Show. John Pielli here, of course, brought to you by JohnPielli.com. One thing that I always touch on, um, thanks to Baseball Reference and a couple other sources, is uh, this date in baseball history. And to, to me, one the greatest thing about going to baseball history and, and using it and things that happen on particular days is that, to me, it's like a time machine. And, you know, I've always talked about reading and research and stuff like that, kind of allowing yourself to go back in time when uh, things were different to different eras, not only on a baseball sense, but on a, on a world sense, a U.S. history sense. And obviously there's the backdrop to so many different things going on. And I noticed it was May 10th of 1928, which was 86 years ago that the St. Louis Cardinals and New York Giants engaged in an even player swap. It was the Giants sending outfielder George Harper to the St. Louis Cardinals in exchange for catcher Bob O'Farrell. And you may be listening and say, all right, what significance does that have? Trades, I'm sure, happened all the time, and they did. But both players, though they had been traded before, I was a little bit interested in the fact that Harper was moved around quite a bit. Uh, in what amounted to an 11-year career for the outfielder, uh, he ended up playing for six teams, including four, in his last four seasons. Now, without free agency, it was uncommon for teams to play for four teams in four seasons. Now, remember, if you did your research, you would know that Rogers Hornsby did that in the years of 1926 to 1929, playing for the Cardinals, of course, several years before that, and then ending in 1926, then going over to the New York Giants, to the Boston Braves, and into the Chicago Cubs. What was fascinating was with Hornsby was the fact that he played in each of his four different teams in 1926 to 1929, which was the same four years that Harper ended up doing the same thing. Now, he started his career, George Harper did, in 1916, playing for the Detroit Tigers, and he stayed there through the 1918 season. And what was very common of players that played in that time, and even later on, up until about the 40s, 50s, and up through the late 60s, where teams were looking to stockpile players at lower levels. And obviously, the minor league system, the farm system, had kind of started and was a little bit prevalent in the time of the late teens and the 20s and the 30s. But, uh, you know, teams really only had maybe one minor league team or one secondary team that they farmed their players out to. And uh, that, that's where Harper ended up from 1920 and 1921. And then he ended up being signed and played for the Cincinnati Reds from 1922 to 1924 where he was traded to the Philadelphia Phillies in a three-way trade 
and he stayed there through the 1926 season. And I mentioned before that George Harper played for four different teams in four seasons from 26 to 29. The first team he played for was the Philadelphia Phillies in 1926. He was then sent to the Cardinals, uh, where he stayed through the 1927 season. And he ended up playing in a World Series against the New York Yankees. And, of course, uh, the 1927 Yankees, known as Murderer's Row, all the runs that they scored, the great team that they had. And a lot of people said I was one of the greatest baseball teams in the history of the sport. And the St. Louis Cardinals uh, were, were a good team, a very talented team, a team that ended up winning the World Series themselves. Uh, a year before in 1926, starting their 11 World Series victories. And then after the season, he was sold to the Boston Braves. And actually, this was after 1928, where the Yankees had won the World Series again. But he was sold by the Cardinals to the Boston Braves in the same transaction that saw future Hall of Famer Rabbit Marinville go to the Braves in addition. So Harper and Marinville went over to the Boston Braves and Marinville became a Hall of Famer inducted by the Veterans Committee in the year of 1954. And what's ironic about that was that was the same year that Marinville had died. He died in January of that year and was inducted into baseball's Hall of Fame a little bit later on. But, you know, back to Harper, he played for the Philadelphia Phillies, the New York Giants, the Boston Braves, and the St. Louis Cardinals from 26 to 29. But earlier on in his career, he played right field for the Detroit Tigers, which I touched on at the beginning of this segment. Now, he played with Ty Cobb and played right field right near the tail end of what would be Hall of Famer Sam Crawford's illustrious career. So he kind of took over right field for a little bit after Sam Crawford was kind of near the end of his career when he ends up retiring. Now, during the 1916 season, uh, there's a 21-year-old outfielder by the name of Harry Heilman who was playing for the Tigers, but he hadn't established himself yet. So Harper was kind of rotating with Heilman a little bit until he ended up emerging into what became his Hall of Fame career. So one thing George Harper did is he was kind of the gap guy, the guy that served right field in between two very good Hall of Fame careers with that of Sam Crawford and Harry Heilman for the Detroit Tigers. And... Not only was Cobb with them through the 26th season, but either Crawford or Heilman manned right field for the Detroit Tigers from the years of 1907 to 1929. After Harper's trade from New York to St. Louis, an 18-year-old outfielder by the name of Mel Ott had a chance to start playing right field for the Giants. Now, Harper was the starting right fielder for the New York Giants uh, before the trade to St. Louis. And, of course, Mel Ott's Hall of Fame career started at that moment in 1928 and would last through the year of 1945. Like I said, George Harper was traded four times and purchased one other time. In fact, there was no known transaction that showed how Harper went from Detroit to Cincinnati, which was something that was very common in the early part of the, the 20th century. And even in part of the 1800s, I mean, you can't look up every single transaction and know exactly how players went from team to team in a time where likely none of us were alive. But George Harper would later manage the El Dorado Lions of the East Dixie League in 1934 and 1935. Something that was also common back then, Harper did stick around in the minor leagues really through the, about the 1935-36 season 
uh, where he did the best he could to try to make get himself another shot. But here's a guy to hit 303 for his career in 11 season, 1,030 hits in his career. Uh, he ended up passing away on August 18th of 1978 at the age of 86. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Don't forget to tweet at me, at John underscore Pielli. As we keep the program interactive, and one thing that I always like to really knock and pick on are, is pretty much John Q. Twitter follower and all these so-called experts that always really kind of tell me and try to tell everybody else whether a move was a good move or a bad move, whether it's a trade, a free agent signing. And the one that stands out to me last year that I always laugh about is the signing that the Red Sox had of Shane Victorino to a three-year contract for almost $40 million and how people killed it for being such a horrible move by the Red Sox, a terrible investment of the money that was saved after they made that trade with the Dodgers to free themselves all that cash. And you go out there and sign an aging player and Shane Victorino for three years. And what a terrible job by the Red Sox. And I love the fact that that got thrown back in their face. I may not per se be a fan of the Boston Red Sox or a fan of Shane Victorino, but I was glad to see the so-called know-it-alls, the pompous assholes that really think that they know everything, kind of had it thrown back in their face because Shane Victorino was a major reason that the Boston Red Sox won the World Series in 2014, went from worst to first, and really made some very um, important moves, not just with Victorino, but with Mike Napoli and other guys that came in there and how the chemistry of the clubhouse changed. And how this became a winning ball club. And remember, Victorino, some of his hits in the ALCS and the World Series. Obviously, without him, the Red Sox do not win the World Series. So, so much for everybody that thought that that was such a terrible move by the Boston Red Sox. And a move that, listen, you know, it's very early in the season. And there's no way to really determine uh, whether these people are going to be right or wrong. But there was a lot of backlash at a trade that sent outfielder Dexter Fowler from the Colorado Rockies to the Houston Astros. And if you look at Fowler from the years of 2010, 2011, in the 2012 and 2013, his best season by far was 2012, where he hit 300, hit 13 home runs, drove in 53 runs, stole just 12 bases, but had 18 doubles, 11 triples, um, and 863 OPS. Now, before that, he was kind of an up-and-coming type of player, battled through a little bit of injuries. You knew he had a little bit of power. You know he had a little bit of speed but was never ever able to really put it together. And that 2012 season was the first sign that he could probably do that on a regular basis. Now, 2013 was a little bit of a disappointment. His average slipped all the way to 263. 12 homers, 42 RBIs, 19 steals, 18 doubles, and just three triples in 119 games. Now, that set the Rockies up in a position where they felt like they kind of had to make a move. Talked about it in the past, how the Rockies had a little bit of a depth issue in their outfield with the signing of Michael Kadire and Carlos Gonzalez, of course, being there and the star player that he was. And one guy that got squeezed out of the equation was Tyler Colvin, who had a very good year a couple of years ago and ended up not really playing on the 2013 Rockies, really diminishing his value where he is now a minor league player. And the Rockies decided to trade Fowler to the Houston Astros. And in doing so, they got themselves left-hand pitcher Jordan Lyles and outfielder Brandon Barnes. And a lot of people were knocking that deal, saying that uh, the Astros ended up not really trading very much to get Fowler. 
and the Astros are kind of an up-and-coming team. You know about the younger players that they have and the fact that they're not going to be very successful until the George Springers, the Jonathan Singletons, the Jared Cozarts end up coming up and making serious impacts. But a, a trade for a guy like Fowler, to me, was kind of a shrewd move for the Astros because it gave a little bit of a veteran presence, a guy who could both lead off and play the outfield as well as maybe bat three or five in the order of an up-and-coming team and provide a little leadership with some of the younger players playing around him. So I didn't mind the deal from the Astros' end. But I also thought that the two players that were given up in the trade were kind of decent. And people were knocking them, saying that the, the Astros ended up really giving up nothing to get Fowler. And if you look at the results of guys like Jordan Lyles and Brandon Barnes, you could say that, hey, maybe even the Rockies came out on the better side of this deal. And like I said, I understand Fowler's value, but let's not forget the fact that Jordan Lyle was, was a first-round draft pick of the Houston Astros, and he's only 23 years old. Here's a guy that, yes, has pitched to a 5-plus ERA at age 20, 21, and 22 with the Astros, but may have been better suited pitching in the minor leagues, and the results have been good this year. He's 5-0 and with a 2.66 ERA and eight starts, by the way, pitching his home games at Coors Field in Colorado. And uh, listen, I think Jordan Lyles has a chance to be a decent pitcher, if not a very good pitcher. Remember guys like uh, Julius Chassin, and Jorge De La Rosa, and Juan Nicasio, and Tyler Chatwood are, are all guys that are going to get a good enough look. But a guy like Jordan Lyles has a chance to be a pretty good pitcher. And I think getting him in a trade for Dexter Fowler was not necessarily a bad move. Another guy they picked up in a deal was outfielder Brandon Barnes. And remember, Barnes is 28 years old, but probably uh, profiles more as a utility type of outfielder. Last year, he hit 240 with eight home runs, 41 RBIs for the Houston Astros, getting probably more of a chance to play than he would have on a team that had themselves set three outfielders. And with the Rockies on a part-time basis, I understand we're not talking about a big sample size, but he's hitting 329. Uh, he's providing a, a very good production for a fourth outfielder. When you look at a guy like Charlie Blackman, who emerges the everyday center fielder, and Michael Kadire has been hurt, so... Uh, they've been trying to patch together right field while Kadire's been out, but Barnes has become a very good fourth outfielder. And I think if you look at the trade, the dynamics of the whole thing, I think it ends up working out to where it's almost an even trade. Dexter Fowler, yes, he's been struggling a little bit this year, but I think he's a guy that the Astros could use in multiple different ways. And, and number one, being a center fielder in, in, a, in a position that you really need a guy to stand up and be that. And guys like George Springer and, you know, like I said, people that are coming up are, are going to benefit from having a veteran presence in that lineup. And if you're the Rockies, listen, Jordan Lyles has a chance to be a guy that could be a fourth or fifth starter. And like he, if he's pitching like he is now, he might be a three starter. And adding a guy like Brandon Barnes to be a fourth outfielder, in my opinion, if you ask me right now, I think it's an even trade. I think both teams ended up making out okay, but the so-called experts, the know-it-alls, the same people that said that Shane Victorino was such a horrible signing for the previously last place Boston Red Sox, are killing this trade, saying that the Astros gave up absolutely nothing to get Dexter Fowler, and I couldn't disagree anymore. Once again, John Pielli, Passball Show, right here on the MTR Radio Network. And I'm going to finish off the program by playing an interview I recorded with former Reds pitcher in 1958 and 1960, 
Ted Weand. Hello, this is John Pielli, and I'm happy to be joined by a uh, former pitcher for the Cincinnati Reds in 1958 and 1960, and that's Ted Weand. Thanks for having a couple minutes. I'm glad to be able to speak with you. Oh, thank you. Uh, Ted, the first question I want to ask you, you know, your, your given birth name is uh, Franklin Delano Roosevelt Weehand. Um, from, from what you know from, from your parents, what, what, was, what was the reasoning behind that? I know, uh, you know FDR became president around the time that you were born, right? Uh, yes, uh, uh, I was born in uh, April 4th, 1933, and uh, he took office in '32. Uh, and my dad, uh, I was the youngest of ten. My dad was uh, unemployed, and um, they uh, started what they called the WPA. Uh, that was a work group that uh, would go out uh, opening uh, woods for roads and repairing roads and stuff like that. So he named me after Franklin uh, Roosevelt. But some of the other people in the in the family were not the same persuasion, so they called me Teddy after Theodore Roosevelt. That's pretty you interesting. Know. <laughs> That's the way it came about. Yeah, so you, you know, there was members of your family that you know whether whether their remembrances of what what Teddy Roosevelt did, or maybe somewhere in your ancestry, and you know they decided to call you Teddy, and that ends up being a name that ends up sticking with you. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty interesting. Now, you know, going back as far as you can, Ted. What is your first memory in regards to baseball? Was it something that maybe you listened to on the radio or played really young? What's your first uh, earliest memory in regards to baseball? Uh, when I was 13 years old, I started playing uh, senior baseball, uh, senior league in uh, high school. That uh, was my first year in high school. And... Uh, uh, I pitched most every game for the high school and the uh, league team. And uh, it just uh, continued on from there. I said, when I was about 16 or 17, and scouts started coming around, and I would go to tryouts and stuff like that. And now, of course, you end up being signed by the St. Louis Cardinals in 1952. Uh, do you remember the, uh, the the courting process? Like you just mentioned about the scouts seeing you and stuff like that. Did you did you see a a uh, professional contract offer on the horizon for you? Well, yeah, uh, because I was to uh, uh, the Cardinals River right here in Allentown, and uh, I was there quite often. Uh, working off the, uh, with the uh, ball club, and uh, I went to Philadelphia, and in Philadelphia I worked off for the uh, uh, St. Louis Browns and the uh, Cleveland Indians, and then I went to, uh, to New York and uh, worked off for the Yankees, and then I went to uh, Boston and spent a week up in Boston with about 40 other guys. And they had a big seminar right there at, uh, in Boston for all their prospects. So uh, I felt that I had a pretty good chance of signing. And, of course, John Pielli here with former Major League pitcher Tad Weehan. 
Now, when you were when you were in the minor leagues after you signed with the Cardinals, um, was there one person, whether it was a fellow pitcher or a coach, that you thought was a pretty good influence on you? Somebody that kind of helped you, showed you the ropes, maybe influenced you in a positive way? Uh, yeah, that's a, we, we, uh, in those days, we didn't have pitching coaches in Colorado. We only had a uh, manager, and uh, uh, he was a manager coach and <laughs> base coach and, and everything. Some of them were even bus drivers. But anyway, uh, the biggest influence and help I got was uh, from another pitcher uh, called, uh, his name was Bob Maine, M-A-V-E. And he threw a slider. I was having trouble uh, with my curveball. And uh, uh, Bob took me down to the bullpen and, and, and we would work on, on a slider. And uh, it took me about, uh, Oh, it took me two years, I guess, till I got it down uh, at. But once I got it, it was a great pitch for me. Uh, I could throw it on any count and throw it for strikes, and uh, it, it really helped me. Now, were you able to continuously develop, continually develop the curveball as well? Was that something you were able to keep with you, or did you drop the curveball after a while? Well, I, I threw a little bit. Uh, I threw a curveball once in a while, but uh, just to let them know that I had one. But it wasn't a very good pitch. Uh, so my, uh, I went sinker slider and uh, two-seamer, four-seamer. And uh, it, it got me to the point where I was the minor league pitcher of the year for the uh, Sporting News in uh, 1959 with Atlanta. Uh, we won the... Uh, Little World Series that year, and uh, uh, we did it uh, with a group of guys that would uh, defend. Uh, we had uh, really good defense, uh, stealing bases. Uh, uh, we didn't we didn't score all that many runs, but we had a really good ball club. Yeah, no question about it. And I tell you, you know, as you come up, you know, you end up uh, being traded to the Cardinals. Uh, you know, you were already with the Cardinals in 1959, like you just mentioned, in, in a deal that ends up sending Kurt Flood over to the Cardinals. And, of course, Kurt Flood, over time, obviously, uh, you know, makes an impact. And his, his actions, you know, end up leading to free agency as it is today. Is that is that something that you think about over time? Or is that just, you know, another player that was involved? than a deal that happened to involve you? Well, uh, yeah, uh, it was uh, Marty Coutinho and Willie Schmidt and I were uh, created for Flood and uh, uh, another outfielder. And uh, at the time, when we were created, I, I didn't even, I, I knew he was a, uh, an outfielder, you know, uh, for Cincinnati, but I didn't know the man. Uh, and uh, all this, uh, like you say, the agency came along uh, afterwards. In fact, it came along after after I was out of baseball. Yeah, of course. And once again, John Pielli here with Ted Weehan. Now, um, what do you remember about your Major League debut? 
you know, a game for the Reds in 1958. You pitch a couple innings, you give up a couple runs. Uh, take us back to that day in 1958, where you know you step on the mound for the first time. You know, you you get to see the crowd. You get to face your first major league hitter. Well, uh, I, it was up in uh, in Boston uh, against the Braves, and. Uh, uh, I remember uh, striking out Warren Spawn, who was not only a pitcher, but he was a good hitter. Yeah, he was. Uh, but uh, uh, Joe Edcock, I think it was Joe Edcock, hit one back at me and, and uh, hit me uh, and went right off the glove, off my glove, and hit me in, in the upper part of my head, and, and uh, that was the end of it. <laughs> so, you know, after that, you end up uh, spending another year in the minors. You come back with the Reds in 1960. You get into a handful of games. Did you have any idea after the 1960 season that you wouldn't pitch another game in the major leagues? No. No. I, I uh, it's 59. Uh, is when I had my good year in, in Havana. And uh, I came back at spring training and thought, I really have a good shot you know, at making this possible. But uh, I had, I had uh, two bad outings. Uh, the first one wasn't bad. The first one I, I relieved in, in Pittsburgh uh, with a one-run lead in the ninth inning. I got two outs. And uh, then a, a little ground ball that nobody could feel. It wasn't hit hard enough for anybody to feel. And then I had two strikes on the next hitter. And uh, two pitch I didn't want to throw, but I, I had no choice. And uh was out of the ballpark and I lost the game. And then the next game I pitched, I just could not, could not throw a strike. And... Uh, I started, I, I relieved in Philadelphia, and uh, I just could not throw a strike. And uh, that was the answer. They sent me back to Atlanta again. Yeah, and of course, in what turns out to be your last major league game, you actually gave up a grand slam to Jimmy Coker. Yeah. And yeah. you know, is that, is that something that kind of resides in you? Maybe you you know, you wish you know you could have kind of had maybe your last game go a little bit better. I would assume. Well, yeah. Uh, I, I don't want to make excuses. <laughs> I was throwing the ball, uh, but uh, uh, Mr. Coker, I pitched against him all 59, and I don't think he had one maybe one hit off me all year. But uh, I couldn't locate the pitches. You know, that's what happens when you can't locate. Now. Now, within your within your games that you pitched in the major leagues, you obviously faced some good teams with some good players. Uh, was there any one star player that you remember facing that's always going to stay with you? Uh, well, in uh, spring training, uh, Jimmy
somebody that was a roommate to you, either in the St. Louis organization or the Cincinnati organization? That was the uh, only for me? Or that no, me? no, no, no. I was talking about a, a roommate. Did you did you have any roommates that stood out for you? Like, let's say, you know, who, who roomed with you when you were in Cincinnati? Going back in your, you know, your entire professional career pitching, you, know, you mentioned the season you had in 1959, a very, very good season, probably the best that you had as a pro. Uh, is there any one moment that stands out, you know, going back all these years later, Ted? Well, I don't know. I mean, I once pitched uh, uh, 14 innings against Tulsa in the, in the Texas League. And I lost one to nothing. I picked it again. Wow, and that's, that's, yeah, that's something you'll never see happen today, huh? No, 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 not anymore. And today, you know, they get 100 pitches, they're, they're getting them out of the ball game. I, I, threw, I, I pitched every fourth day in the minor leagues and threw uh, 130, 140 pitches many times. Uh, I, uh, of course, maybe that uh, helped. Uh, shorten my lifespan in baseball too, you know, because uh, uh, when uh, this happened, I hadn't pitched in a game for six weeks, and then I went down to AAA, and and uh, uh, it just snapped my my elbow just snapped, and that was the end of my career. So showing all my pitches, you know. Sure, didn't do any good. All right, Ted, I appreciate you having some time, and uh, like you said, I, I really appreciate you giving me a couple minutes. Big thanks to Barry Lyons, Jerry Lumpy, and of course, Ted Weehan for being part of the program today. We'll see you next week on a past ball show brought to you by JohnPielli.com.